Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey guys, welcome to Somewhere in the Skies. I'm your host, Ryan Sprague. I want to take just one more moment to thank my new patrons on Patreon for their monthly contributions to the show. To Wayne J., Patrick M., Rob K., and Sean T. Thank you so much for your continued support. Many levels and rewards are now being offered. To help the show continue and grow, please consider becoming a patron today. To learn more and to contribute, visit patreon.com backslash somewhere skies. Thank you again. And now, on to this week's show. This is Somewhere in the Skies with Ryan Sprague. We are taking a break this week from spooky listener tales to talk briefly about the big announcement from former Blink-182 frontman, Tom DeLonge. For a little under six months now, Tom DeLonge has been teasing some grand reveal about what he's learned and where his work is heading within the realm of the UFO reality and UFO studies. Well, on October 11th, that official announcement by DeLonge was finally made. And the response has certainly been mixed. So let's start with what the announcement actually was, with a concise description from punk rock and UFOs blogger Mike DeMonte. Mike writes, Tom DeLonge's big announcement is the formation of the To The Stars Academy of Arts and Science, which promises to focus on synergistic divisions of science, aerospace, and entertainment. DeLonge is joined by an impressive list of former government officials from national security and the scientific community to help push the progress forward in research, advanced technology, and informative storytelling, which is likely where the Secret Machines fiction and non-fiction franchises fit. Thank you for that very concise description, Mike. Now, beyond what Mike covered, we have also learned that DeLonge will be creating documentaries, movies, and TV shows alongside the books. This is rubbing a lot of people the wrong way, as nothing more than a huge entertainment cash grab. Also, you can invest in the Academy and be given exclusive information as it progresses, for a price. The lowest level of investment? 200 bucks. Now, when I posted this announcement on the Somewhere in the Skies Facebook group, the comments exploded. And right now, I wanted to give you just a small taste of what some listeners think about this whole thing. Some were very supportive of the endeavor, and some, not so much. Let's start with the more optimistic responses. Chris writes, quote, Loved it, and I hope it succeeds. I did my part with investing, end quote. Matthew also likes the idea of the To The Stars Academy, stating that he is, quote, very supportive of this research being done in the public sector for a change, with visibility. Very excited for the future. Hope it gets some traction, end quote. Chris and Matthew are joined by Scott, who also says, quote, I applaud the conception and welcome the proposition. Forward thinking on a high level, end quote. Now, even with a skeptical eye, Debbie also agrees, stating, quote, Some think this is a sham, a con, and nothing good will come of it, and it smacks the whole possibility of disclosure in the face. I say, give this a fighting chance, end quote. But that skeptical eye widens, and some are a bit more cautious. Michael writes, quote, Sounds like they're not really going to convey much in the way of hidden information, but rather want to raise money for a super-hyped new MUFON with a wing that researches exotic technology. End quote. John also cautions us that these announcements have been made before. He says, quote, I'm old enough to remember those who were burned by Doty, the aviary, and Brogno, Jonathan Reed, or any number of deeply entrenched insiders who are going to break this phenomena wide open. Again, I find this fine. I support open, honest thoughts and ideas, 
But as with any announcement, breakthrough, or information in this community regarding this phenomena, time and caution should be taken at every turn." End quote. Brad also brings the individuals involved under scrutiny of their motivations. He says, quote, I would be curious to know what exactly those aerospace and military members know or believe to be true, based on their personal knowledge. Are they just interested people who are approaching this topic from the same position we all are? Or did their work in the classified world expose them to certain truths or facts that make this phenomena more than curious endeavor for them? I think that matters, because otherwise we just have another group of curious guys who want some funding to play UFO hunters." End quote. Michael H. writes, Fascinating pitch. Hopefully somewhere in that inspirational mixed bag of building flying saucers, exploring ESP, and funding sci-fi movies, there will be some scientific investigation of aerial anomalies. I doubt it, though. I see no engagement of the phenomena with this tech entertainment startup. End quote. The last listener comment brings us back to Mike DeMonte, who says, quote, Tom DeLong has always aimed high, but logistically, this will be hard to pull off in addition to all the other things he wants to do with a relatively small operation. DeLong has lofty ambitions here that he's likely to not fully achieve. But if all we get out of this is some physical footage, evidence, documentation, or confirmation via this weekly show, it won't be a total bust, end quote. Now, before we go any further on either revering or rejecting this entire endeavor, I find it only fair to include DeLong's own words on this. So here's a portion from his live broadcast announcement. Have a listen. We're living in an age where a new universal view of ourselves is possible, and revolutionary technology is finally within our reach if we just have the courage to grasp it. And whether it's trying to launch satellites into space with lasers, which we are aiming to do, or making major motion pictures that spark the imagination of generations to come, the rule must be the same. No one person, one government, or one hidden institution should own this information and technology unto themselves. And we must relentlessly pursue access to the information that will shape our future. Look very closely at these people and who they are, and take notice of where they come from and think about the realities of what this team has the ability to accomplish and deliver if we're fully equipped. And be a part of making history and join us at the start. We cannot wait and depend for others, depend on others to do it for us. And you have the ability to take ownership from day one and keep all this in the public's hands. And that is my goal here. You can join us and own a piece of this because that's what it's gonna take for this to happen. And you have to visit to the stars academy.com and click on the invest button and you will learn about the regulation a equity crowdfunding um, and this process removes the middleman and democratizes access to equity ownership go to to the stars academy.com you can read the offering circular you can see the business plan you can see the investment opportunities uh, and, and all the risks involved investing in this type of a venture but this may be the only time in history you will ever see one of the biggest aerospace engineers in the world, a senior intelligence officer from the CIA, two former senior Pentagon officials, and an experimental physicist from the DOD take a giant leap of faith to tell you something. And I ask that you listen very carefully. These guys really went out on a limb here. And the only way to do this is if we do it in the public realm. And the only way to bring it out to you is if you help us. We're offering you the opportunity to be on the ground floor of building the future. And this is only the beginning. There is so much more coming. We're making history. And I'm inviting you to be wonderfully surprised at what we got in store. Thank you so much. Okay. Now, that list of individuals involved is quite impressive. I personally have to admit, you have people like Jim Semivin, who is former CIA, You've also got Hal Putoff, who has worked with GE, the NSA, NASA, and even the DOD. You also have Steve Justice, who was Program Director for Advanced Systems with Skunk Works, and even a former Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Intelligence, Chris Mellon. So I guess one thing is for certain. When DeLong first teased that he was working with prominent people, he most definitely wasn't lying. 
But what leaves most of the public questioning all this is why these individuals have come forward with what they know to start this entire endeavor with DeLong. It seems that very little of this project actually has to do with UFOs. This isn't a grand disclosure or even a partial disclosure that many were either naively expecting or wishfully hoping for. It is an ambitious project helmed by a businessman in DeLong who definitely knows his shit, but also knows that in order for any of this to happen, a ton of money needs to be raised and invested for any of this to actually happen. What some may not realize is that both secrecy and transparency can be very expensive. And with these individuals involved, money will be going in and going out, pumped through channels that the Academy deems worthy. And the filtered knowledge and information will then be given to the public that invest. But what about those who don't? Is this just a large-scale MUFON membership feedback loop? Or is it indeed a groundbreaking step forward for humanity? in terms of technological advancement and aerospace exploration. Is pre-existing UFO technology a part of any of this? There are so many questions. And just like we all waited forever for this announcement to be made, I have no doubt that we will wait just as long to truly see where this is all heading. Personally, I will continue to safely dip my toes in the shallow end, watching from the periphery as this all unfolds and the boys club dives deeper and deeper. But just like the listeners above, I'd love to hear your thoughts. Have you invested? What do you think the end game is here? Please send me your thoughts and comments by using the contact tab on the website, somewhereintheskies.com. And now let's switch gears and get to this week's topic and guest. It has become one of the most popular and critically acclaimed podcasts to date. Lore is a bi-weekly show about non-fiction scary stories. Each episode examines historical events that show the dark side of human nature, usually through the lens of folklore. The series was created in 2015 by Aaron Mankey and received the iTunes Best of 2015 award. The podcast was also given the award for the Best History Podcast by the Academy of Podcasters in 2016. At the end of 2016, the podcast was included in the top lists by The Atlantic and Entertainment Weekly. But it doesn't end there. This past Friday the 13th, the podcast came to television life, with Amazon Studios at the helm. From the executive producer of The Walking Dead and the executive producer of The X-Files, this anthology series brings to life Aaron Mankey's lore podcast and uncovers the real-life events that spawned our darkest nightmares. Throughout history, fear was best kept buried, sealed, closed. But folklore has a way of keeping the door open wide, allowing stories to live and breathe, to creep inside and haunt us. I'm Aaron Mankey, and this is Lore. Today, I pull a fascinating interview out of the vault, where I speak with Lore creator Aaron Mankey. Mankey is the writer, host, and producer of Lore as well as the author of a number of supernatural thrillers. He has a deep love of the mysterious and frightening that began with Unsolved Mysteries and The X-Files, a love that continues to this day. Basically, he's a nerd for anything unexplainable or supernatural. Mankey lives with his family in the historic North Shore area of Boston, the very heart of Lovecraft country, and the epicenter of the Salem Witch Trials. So, without further ado, let's continue our Halloween countdown with Aaron Mankey. Just a warning, my personal audio during this interview is not exactly top-notch. Technical issues definitely got the best of me during this recording, but we soldiered on. On the flip side, Mankey sounds incredible as a multi-million download podcast should. Thanks for your understanding, and I hope you enjoy. Thanks for joining us, Aaron. Thanks for having me, Ryan. Appreciate it. So when did your interest in folklore really first begin, Aaron? What is your origin story, as it were? (laughs) (laughs) Well, it doesn't begin in a vat of toxic chemicals, so that's probably a good thing. Um, You know, I think folklore and legends... Uh, it, it sounds cliche, but they've been a part of my life since probably grade school. I mean, I'm thinking maybe 10 years old or younger. You know, I don't know how old you are, and but my like 
I was always sent home with those scholastic reader catalogs. My kids get these now too. So I'm oh, sure yes. they've done them for decades. You know, I just, it was a place where people like fell in love with books. You could pick up, you know, a book on InSync or uh, Battlestar Galactica, but you could also pick up, you know, classics. I think my mom used it to get me um, my first fantasy set, which was The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings. And it was, I think it was a book from the Scholastic Reader at some point when I was in, in grade school that had, it was like a collection of ghost stories and mysterious events. I remember a story about a person walking into a, like a circle in a cornfield and then vanishing um, you know, just things like that. That was, that was the book that really kicked it off for me. And then of course I was growing up in the, in the eighties. And so, um, my interest took root in shows like unsolved mysteries and, mm. and then later on the X-Files. And then it's just been a part of me ever since. Was there always a keen interest or a, maybe a personal experience in the odd or the, the unexplainable that sort of sent you on this path to research this type of topic and subtopics as it were? <laughs> Well, not not particularly like like an event in my own life. I, I have to sit down and think about it for a while, and I haven't had a chance to do that. But I the only the only odd event that's ever happened in my life. I I think at some point right after college, I saw like a, a white lady on the side of the road um, driving through the cornfields of Illinois. But you know, it, it's also muddled by a couple decades of of, <laughs> of memories. Um, but but you know, for the for the most part, my interest is really just born out of you know, like again, this this love of the of the of the the ghost stories, the mysterious, the unsolved mysteries kind of thing, mm-hmm. um, and also uh, just a deep love of history. I think I've always been fascinated with um, learning as much as I can about different periods of history and and the way the stories are passed on. And uh, I didn't realize that I was collecting all of these interests into something that would one day become <laughs> what it is. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but you know, hindsight's twenty twenty, like they say. And I look back, and I'm and it, it's kind of obvious to me now that oh yeah, of course, with all of these interests combined, this is this is what I should be doing. So uh, yeah, th- th- there's been pieces of it along the way. Gotcha. Yeah, we will definitely go into the history aspect um, mm-hmm. for sure, Aaron. Uh, you've described lore, your podcast that we mentioned earlier, obviously, um, as almost an happy accident, like tripping upon it almost. Could you give us sort of a a backstory as to how the podcast came to be? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so basically, I had been writing and self publishing my own supernatural thrillers for about two years. I'd put, I'd, I've written three novels, um, and I was really actually giving. I was ready to give up. Um, I was I was a full time designer, been running my own design business for about eight years, and I noticed that every time I wrote a book, my business would suffer. And it wasn't because I was somehow taking my foot off the gas or not marketing for that period of time. I just I never marketed my business at all. It was always word of mouth. So I, I noticed a pattern, and I realized, you know, I'm selling three or four books a month. You know, it wasn't even enough <laughs> to pay for the coffee I was drinking while I was writing the books, let alone you know, recoup my, my time investment. So I, I, I got to the point where I just realized it was hard to justify a hobby that wasn't paying for itself. And I mean, novels take a lot of time. You know, I, I wrote my, my latest one, I wrote really fast. I, I dedicated myself to at least a thousand words a day. So I wrote, I wrote, you know, a, a, like a 90,000 word book in about 45 days. Um, <laughs> wow. But, you know, it was, it was like, I can't do this during, you know, National Novel Writing Month. For some odd reason, I can't do it. But, but during, <laughs> During uh, January of last year, I just I cranked out a book. So you know, it's, but it takes a lot of time. And then there's all the other stuff when you're self-publishing. You know, having a professional cover design and doing mm-hmm. the layout and getting it all disseminated to the stores online. So I, I just decided I needed to figure out if it was really worth it or not. So as a final, you know, last ditch effort, my hail mary was I decided I would write this nonfiction exploration of like some of my favorite myths and legends, the history behind them, you know, and then give that away to people in exchange for their email address. Because that's, that's what all the pros will tell you is you need to build a bigger mailing list. And then you have direct contact with your readers. You can, you can share excitement and behind the scenes stuff. And it's all, it's all good. It's about community building. And I like that. But, um, you know, so in theory, I thought with a bigger mailing list, maybe I could sell more fiction and then that would actually justify my time. In the end, this, this nonfiction giveaway thing just got too long, honestly. And, uh, I don't, I don't have a lot of time to sit down and read for pleasure outside of the stuff I do for lore, um, but, but it's usually reading on a screen or in audio format. So I thought, you know, this thing is like 15,000 words long at this point. Maybe I should just record one of them and see if, if that's good enough as a giveaway. And so I, I recorded the first one, which ended up being episode one of lore. Um, I, I let a friend listen to it. He has very similar interests. We're 
kind of from the same era. And, and he said, you know, I, this needs to be a podcast, Aaron. You can't, don't give this away. Make, make this a podcast. And I thought, you know, what the heck, what do I have to lose? And, uh, and he was right. So the rest, I guess, is, is history. Right, right. Yeah. I mean, I've been listening since pretty much day one, uh, my girlfriend nice. and I. And like you said, it's that word of mouth that really gets it out there. And It really uh, is. It is. And that plays very well into the whole oral tradition of folklore <laughs> as it, well. It does. You know? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, but I, people email me all the time and say, Aaron, you know, you've you really created something amazing. Like, how do I, how do I go out and start a successful podcast? And my answer is always, you know, it's tongue in cheek, but it, you know, like you've just got to create something that's really, really good. Mm-hmm. So good that people will talk about it with other people. Unfortunately, there's no like steps in there. It's just, that's what it is. Create something worth talking about and then people will talk about it and it'll grow. And I, I somehow accidentally managed to do that. <laughs> so how do you go about your research, Aaron? Uh, where do you find your stories for lore? Well, you know, stories are like ogres. They're like onions. Mm-hmm. Um, so a lot of the time I find stories while I'm researching other stories, which is really great because I often don't have time to sit down and think like, okay, what's my next topic? Usually what happens is while I'm working on you know episode X, I find four more ideas that I just kind of make note of and file them away. So I take a lot of notes. I save a lot of articles, both, you know, like an online article on a, on a website or, um, sources that I find through books. Um, I'll take pictures of pages and make bibliography um, <laughs> stuff set up just for later use. Um, I use Evernote for just about everything for lore um, on the research side. So, you know, the fact that I can, I can jump in and, and highlight things it's so that later on when I come back, I know what paragraph really, you know, ticked off the inspiration. And uh, so, yeah, so, so basically topics start with some sort of inspiration or memory of something that I might've bumped into or heard and then I just like I chase down as many sources as I can, you know, historical accounts and books and articles and, and whatnot. And I read a ton. Um, but the Internet's made it a lot easier than this might have been, you know, 30 years ago. Google has hundreds of millions, I think, of books on their books.google.com website. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, just like you would search for images, you can you can go to books.google.com and you can type in uh, Robert the Doll and, uh, and put that in quotation marks so it grabs the phrase and then hit search. And it'll search through books that it's scanned in for a topic. And so I don't have to then, you know, buy 20 books on, you know, paranormal stories and go digging for what I need. What I need floats to the surface. And then I can read that. I can cite those sources. I can run with that, that info and, and, and move quicker because the episodes take a little bit of time to put together. You know, when I first started listening and you were telling these stories, it, it struck me. I said, is, where is he getting this from? Is he, is he sitting down and almost writing these phantom essays to himself? And uh, I was so, you know, delighted to hear that, yes, you take the time to write your entire story, as it yeah. were, in your own words and convey that to the audience. So yeah, absolutely. That always yeah. struck me most as a writer myself. So uh, kudos yeah, on you know, that. <laughs> I, I write it. So, you know, I tell people this takes me about 40 hours mm-hmm. from inception to through the research and writing process, recording and production, and then putting it out. That's about 40 hours of, of my time. And because Laura is a business for me now, I mean, this is, it's my full-time job. So I have sponsors. Right. Um, so that brings in um, communication with sponsors and billing and invoices and, you know, taking care of things on the tax side. Like there's, there's a whole world of the business side. That's not the sexy, Oh, cool. I want to be a podcaster kind of thing, <laughs> uh, but it comes with the territory. You have to just w- let that in uh, if you get to that part and that's, that's everybody's hope. So just be ready. If you want to have a successful podcast with lots of sponsors and stuff, then you're going to spend a lot of time in QuickBooks. It's a business here, um, right? <laughs> it is. It is. So, you know, 40 hours a week, uh, 40 hours per episode. And then I've got the other 40 cause I'm doing them every two weeks. So essentially Half my time is spent on creating the episode and then half my time is spent on running the business and mm-hmm. marketing and interacting with, with, with listeners and things like that. Yeah, it, it, but I write, them, I write them as if I'm going to say them. You know, I, I, don't, I don't write a term paper and then, and then try to read that because reading things that are written for print, is, it's awkward. You know, some syllables just don't like to be said next to another syllable, but they look good on paper. Right. So that's, that, I tend to write it in a, a more... I, maybe this is what speechwriters do. I don't know, but this is this is what I've kind of intuited my way into. I had somebody email me just this morning um, who said, "I love your podcast, but you've got to stop saying you see uh, a few times <laughs> per episode." But you know, like if you were sitting in front of me or we were at a campfire and I was telling a story, there are things that would come out of me vocally that were they're just I don't know if I want to call them ticks or it's it's part of the it's part of the fingerprint of of my storytelling voice and. 
Right. That's that's part of it. And I think you only notice things like you see or sometimes or you know the words that I say often enough in an episode. I- How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey, it's Sharon, and here's where it gets interesting. Raise your hand if you want Salon Perfect Nails for just $2 a manicure. Yeah, me too. With the Alvin June Manny system, you can say goodbye to expensive services that take hours and hours and love your nails more than ever. I would know I've been doing it for years. Get 20% off your first Manny system with code PERFECTMANNY20 at alvinjune.com slash PERFECTMANNY20. That's PERFECTMANNY20 at alvinjune.com slash PERFECTMANNY20. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. I think it's when people binge through, you know, 10 or 20 episodes at once. Right. They start to notice things like that. If you're listening to it every other week, it's not a big deal. So <laughs> uh, it, it's funny, the, the little things that people will, will nitpick. But 99% of the email I get is really positive. So that's, that's where I... I have to hold on to that. <laughs> right. It's a cork, yeah. man. It makes you the character that you are, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> Speaking of writing, uh, does your research into folklore or superstition, does it ever bleed into your novel writing? It, kind of uh, backwards, actually. Okay. So lore was, was in a sense born because of the research I was doing for the novel. So um, the, the novels that I write are, are kind of in the vein of like, like Stephen King, um, except I'm not as good as him. Um, I mean, you know, he's the master. So I, I sit at his feet, but the, but as far as like the genre is concerned, I, you know, I take really obscure superstition, mythology, folklore, whatnot. That's, that's local to an area, usually new England for me, cause that's where I live. And it's just a it's an area that's dripping with with folklore, mm-hmm. um, European, American Indian, you know, the uh, specifically the Algonquin um, tribes that lived in the northeast part of uh, the United States. Like, there's just so much really great stuff here. So, um, a lot of that mythology is where the seeds of my books come from. And of course, I live five minutes from Salem, where the witch trials happened in 1692. So, mm-hmm. there's just a lot going on. So. The, what happens is I'm I'm researching, looking for the right, you know, what's the right thing at the center of this book? And I'll find six things. And then in the end, I pick one of them. Well, now I've got five other things that I've filed away. And and so I noticed that I, I had this this file in Evernote growing of, you know, future topics or cool ideas or folklore to, to pursue. And and it was out of that folder that, that the first, you know, three or four episodes of lore kind of came about. I was, the book I was, the, the little giveaway I was writing was going to be called My Five Favorite New England Myths. And it, it included the the Mercy Brown story from episode one, the the Hussock Tunnel from episode two. There was um, the Dover Demon, which was a later episode. Um, oh, that yes. one needed a lot of fleshing out. So I, I came back to that one later and I really expanded upon it. But uh, yeah, um, so it, it, it wasn't necessarily that the lore bleeds back into, although maybe it will, you know, maybe because I haven't written a book in a year now. So maybe... Maybe the the writing techniques and you know the research process and all that is going to bleed back over, but for the most part, it was it was leftovers from the books that became lore. Well, I mean, one of those books, Grave Suspicion, like you mentioned, that sort of that core to the book um, for me in this book was uh, 
witches. Um, and again, mm-hmm. like you said, your main character, Sam, having grown up in the Salem area, what sort of made you compelled to write about witches in this latest book and the certain lineage that your characters have to to these incidents back in Salem? Well, you know, like a lot of writers, my my story ideas come come to me with kind of like a what if scenario. And I and I remember thinking, what if, you know, like we, we have all these documents and we have all this oral history and then the public perception of what happened in 1692 with the witches, uh, the witch trials in Salem. Mm-hmm. What if what if, the, you know, and there's there's all these like symptoms or supernatural occurrences that are listed. What if they were real? Like what if what if the things that happened were real? But the but the person who was to blame never got caught, mm. you know. What if it wasn't all of those people who were prosecuted and some of some of whom were were hung? What if it wasn't the people who took the blame because it was very easy to become suspicious in people's eyes back then? What if it was what if it was somebody who slipped through the cracks but actually did those things? And then I started playing with that, you know. And so a lot of the plot of grave suspicion comes out of the idea of well. What if we're sitting here today and we're looking back, like if if that person got away, what kind of a thread would be left through history? And, you know, does that speak to anything that could be going on today, if that makes any sense? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it was a page turner for sure. And oh, thanks. those what ifs are always, you know, <laughs> what we try to cover on our show. Yeah. For sure. Um, are there any topics, Aaron, going back to lore um, that you found most, I guess, most intriguing or have either stretched your beliefs or made you more suspicious or somewhere in between anything that really sticks out to you you know i try not to land on one side of the fence or the other Mm -hmm. i'm i'm enthralled by the stories you know by the actions the the beliefs of the people who who lived in these you know years before us how the beliefs inform society and and families and the way people interacted with each other that you know the the i think the episodes that really have connected with me the most, both in just reading about them and then writing them were, were episodes like black stockings where you have, you know, Bridget Cleary becomes sick and her husband, because of this deep Irish folklore from, from where they lived, convinced him that his wife wasn't really his wife, that she had been replaced by a fairy changeling. And there were, there were rules and, and, uh, and steps that you could take in, in the folklore of that area that, that helped you figure out if she was a changeling and, um, and how to get rid of her. And unfortunately it's kind of like the, you know, the, well, we'll dunk the witch in the water. And if she drowns, she wasn't a witch. And if she doesn't drown, then she's a witch and we'll kill her. You know, it's, (laughs) there's, there's this broken logic to a lot of it. And, but people, because it's folklore, because it's part of their upbringing, the culture that they live in, and there's the social pressures to believe what everybody else believes. They do some really horrific things, even, even not, not because they're horrific people, but because they're they're almost trapped between you know society and belief and desperation. And so you know, Black Stockings was one of those episodes that really kind of reached out and and grabbed a hold of me. Another was um, you know ha- uh, half hung mm-hmm. uh, about or half hanged. Sorry to to be uh, grammatically correct, half hanged <laughs> about Mary Webster in Western Massachusetts and and her uh, you know trial, um, if you want to call it that, as a as a witch. Yeah, those are the ones that the ones where you see society kind of become the monster. That's right. where it re- really hits home for me. You were once quoted as saying, "Sometimes folklore is paint on top of a messy human situation, and we tell it through the lens of a fairy tale or scary story because humans really can't be the monsters." Um, mm. This is this touched me very keenly because we always look for something else other than ourselves, um, almost as if we fear ourselves more than what may be out there. Uh, do you see this cultural narrative as an inspiration on either the paranormal or the unknown? Or where does the folklore begin and where does the reality of a situation perceivably end, I guess? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's the trick of folklore, you know, mm-hmm. because it's, it's, it, it almost, it's almost like this physical entity living within a, a, a subculture or a people group. I mean, they bring it with them like luggage when they, they, that's why I like New England because you can start here with a myth or a legend or a piece of folklore that's centuries old and follow it through its roots to other places. So I, from, from New England and, you know, the, the story of Mercy Brown and the American vampires, I can follow that back through to Europe. And, you know, it's, it's just, it spreads. Folklore kind of moves along almost like a a virus or, Mm -hmm. you know, some sort of baggage that you bring with you. So, you know, I, what I think I've begun to pick up on is that humans just don't like not knowing, you know, we, 
we, we crave explanations. We, we don't like there to be an unanswered question. And, and maybe that's a product of the modern age and the, the age of enlightenment and, and the scientific method and really digging for the truth. And that, those are all good things. But we crave explanations. So I think supernatural events, you know, do they make us search for explanations that end up sounding like supernatural stories? Or, you know, or do they, or do we use made up stories as a tool to explain deep concepts or things that we can't otherwise wrap our minds around? You know, it's impossible to say, you know, it's like really old cultures who would, you know, call the mountains, the bones of the earth and think of the earth as like this dead creature that, that once was alive and moving and was killed by one of the Titans or the gods. And now we can see the bones here and, you know, finding a way to, to wrap minds around, stuff that's just too hard to understand. And I think it's impossible to say. I think it's probably a little bit of both because nothing's ever black and white. You know, it's, it's never all or nothing. It's always a mix. It's, right. it's gray. So, but yeah, I, 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 see, um, I, I just see humans constantly craving answers and explanation. And when there isn't one that they can grasp or find, you'll usually find in a culture some sort of a story you know, made up that kind of explains why. I mean, speaking of storytelling, that's what sets your show apart from most uh, podcasts, I think, that deal with the esoteric or the uh, quote-unquote paranormal. Um, how do you view storytelling now? Uh, what sets it apart from generations before? Well, I mean, what I do is oral storytelling, right. you know, in the truest sense. There's no, there's no pictures. There's no, it's just my voice and, and some music for mood, you know. So I think oral, oral storytelling is very similar to to what has always been. I mean, anybody that's been to camp, you know, at some point in their, you know, middle school or high school years has got some story about, you know, sitting around the campfire and telling stories that are local to that campsite or whatnot. Um, and honestly, the only things that have changed over the centuries are delivery methods mm-hmm. and, and the audience size. The, the, a century ago, you would tell a story to a, a dozen people sitting on your front porch and that was about as, as big as it got, you know? Mm-hmm. In the past, we would have gathered around the, the fire and, and then, you know, you speak the words to each other. Uh, and maybe there would be costumes or, or dance or recreations of battles. Maybe it's just standing there and talking. But the, the power, I think, was in the words. And, uh, and, and I, I like to think of it as a tribal experience, whether you're from a culture that calls it a tribe or not. You know, it's a community event. Um, and because of that, um, the audience was also the they were, they were the participants. They were, they were picking up the story that was being laid down for them and kind of, they lived with it day in, day out. And, and so story was, it just became this glue that held everything together. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, beliefs, lessons, history, all of it was taught through story. You know, that's what the, the, the folk tales and fairy tales that Hans Christian Andersen and I'm blanking on Grimm's, the Grimm brothers um, mm-hmm. gathered together over the years. I mean, the, one of the, the things that they really wanted to do is, was capture this, um, vocal oral storytelling that was going on all around them. And there was slight differences from town to town and all that, but they wanted to capture it all because that's, that's how things were being passed along. Sometimes it was lessons. Sometimes it was history. It was all taught through story. I think what's different now is that today we're, we're a really nomadic people. You know, I think that we move a lot more than our parents did or our grandparents did. It's easier. You can pick up and move 2000 miles away and Facebook connects you with people. And you know, you don't feel like you're, you're really away at all in a sense. Um, so there are fewer and fewer geographical tribes, uh, but the internet connects us in a way that, you know, television and, and even radio before that couldn't do because even radio had, had limits to its reach. Mm-hmm. So it puts people in direct contact with each other. And, and, and that means that hundreds or thousands or millions of people can, can all hear and interact with a story like all at the same time or, you know, all on the same day. It's, it's, it's kind of crazy when you think about it. You know, you mentioned in, in the intro about 2 million downloads. Actually, this month I'm going to hit the 9 millionth download for Lore. And oh when you think gosh. about that, like 9 million, I mean, sure, I've got 25 episodes out. So you have to do some division by that. But still, that's, that's a lot of people who are all gathering around this, this virtual campfire, you know? And right. uh, I think it really speaks to how, how much people just love to have story told to them. And I, I love doing it. So it works right. out pretty nicely. It really does. Yeah, it's a wonderful dichotomy. And I mean, that's that's absolutely incredible. Nine million. Oh, congratulations. On that. <laughs> thanks, uh, thanks we can only aspire. Um, <laughs> that being said, um, I, I think you're right. It's that dichotomy of sort of the isolation of being, you know, face to face with a computer screen by yourself, but being able to connect with people from all around the world all at yeah, once or absolutely. At, at your convenience. So, yeah. Yeah. It's uh 
says a lot about the times and cannot really be argued that it's either a positive or negative. Like you said earlier, it's still in that gray area. And, um, yeah, I think- absolutely. And I mean, you know, the, because we do this oral storytelling, not in front of each other, you know, around a fire on a porch or, or in a room together, you do lose things because part of public speaking is, you know, body language and, and the, you know, the, just the way that your eyes might look while you're, you know, or the, or the smile on your face, like all of that communicates. And so there are elements that we lose. But, you know, I, I think that podcasting, you know, I realize it's been around for a decade and, and for a long time, it's been kind of this nerd thing that you have to understand RSS feeds and how to subscribe and mm-hmm. how it all works. But it's I, hopefully it's becoming more and more accessible to people. I think I think the growth we're seeing thanks to shows like Serial and, and This American Life through NPR, I think that's. It's helping teach the non-technical people more about how they can dive into the world of podcasting and find stuff. And, uh, you know, who knows, maybe over the years to come, we're going to find ways for those things like body language and expressions and, you know, just being in the room with somebody to be replicated in some way. I don't know how, (laughs) but but in some way, you know? All right. The singularity at its best. (laughs) That's right. I mean, we, we found this as our outlet to get these, you know, very controversial and or, you know, esoteric topics out to the public in the way we thought we could do that best. And you seem to have done that both in podcast form and books. Um, Are you working on any new books as we speak? Can we expect anything in the coming year or so? (laughs) I actually have a, I have a lot on my plate this year that is that is lore related, but Mm -hmm. not regular podcast episodes. So, so, you know, everybody's going to get Every other week, they're going to get a brand new lore episode. That doesn't go away. Like that's that's what it is. My Patreon members, by the way, get extra episodes. They get like I could do lore shorts, mm-hmm. um, you know, five minute long or so, one story, not a lot of background stuff. It's just let's get into the story and, and this is really cool. I want to share it with you. And they get those on the off weeks. So I, I'm con- those are the things that I'm constantly creating. But I have some I have some other projects in the works. I can't talk about all of them. Of course. Um, one of them is um, I'm taking the anthology, I'm taking the transcripts from all of 2015 episodes. There's 24 of them. You know, it's basically just, it's all the words that I said typed out. You know, it's it's copies of my transcripts with the footnotes and, you know, links to articles and whatnot. And I'll release that in February as a as a paperback and an ebook and things like that. My, my Patreon backers at a certain level um, have a paperback coming to them, so... Uh, and I promised months ago that it would come out in February. I, as a designer, you know, with with experience doing paperback layout and cover design and all that, I didn't think that taking the text and then making it into a physical book would actually take that much um, effort on my part. Mm-hmm. I'm hiring a, a fantastic cover illustrator who did the new Raven shirt for me. Um, he's a uh, his name is Christopher Downs. He's a, a cartoonist, a political cartoonist in in Tasmania of all places. Oh wow! <laughs> um, but he's you know he was voted the the best political cartoonist of 2015 in Australia and like super super talented. And he's got this this love of like that that Edward Morey creepy side kind of like mm-hmm. would fit really well in a uh, a Tim Burton movie kind of style. So he's going to do the cover art for it. And then I'm working right now on the where I've gotten hung up in the footnotes. Actually, it's it's kind of a mess, but. Um, <laughs> It's just, it's about, it's about formatting. I think it's the first book I've laid out that actually has like end notes and, you know, all that kind of stuff. But um, I want to work on a sequel to Grave Suspicion. For me, there are, there are, um, there are plotters and pantsers when it comes to fiction. You know, there are pantsers like Stephen King who just sit down with an idea and they write until they're done. Me, I'm a, I'm a plotter. I like to sit down and, and outline the entire book. I want to know what each chapter is going to have happen in it. And then I can just then I can put a repeating task on my to-do list and say, write a thousand words and, and, you know, it's every day. And so then I, you know, when it's, when it's time to write, I open up my outline and say, where am I? Okay. Chapter three, this is what I'm writing about today. And I write it, you know, of all the continuity and the flow is already planned out. So, mm-hmm. um, what I need to do is find time to sit down and do that. And it would probably take me about a week to just like, you know, hit my head against a wall and, and mash out some sort of a, an outline. I have ideas for the, for the sequel to that book, but mm-hmm. That's that's the fiction project I've got, and uh, yeah, oh, I can't wait, man. <laughs> <laughs> so that being said, I mean, are there any any sort of topics and or folklore that you haven't covered yet that you hope to, or that you would really like to? You know, okay. So confession time. I have a hard time pronouncing words in other languages. I mm-hmm. took German in high school. Um, German's a pretty easy language to wrap your tongue around. So. I, you know, if you've listened to the show, I've butchered words in, in <laughs> Icelandic and I, I try my best. I try my best with, you know, um, Algonquin and, you know, things like that. So 
I need to get over that fear. I mean, even things like Irish, um, you know, there are some things like I would love to cover, uh, you know, the story of the Banshee, you know, but, but it's written out in certain ways and different myths that I need to figure out how to pronounce the words, (laughs) you know, so that's sometimes that's the holdup. It's like, I have to say this verbally, how, how am I going to do that? So, but, but outside of that, I would really love to explore non-European cultures as well, Mm -hmm. but it's hard because, you know, a lot of the source material is not in a language that I can read and Google Translate can only do so much for you. And right. so I'm, I'm trying my best. Um, you know, the, today's episode that just came out today, um, The Cave, episode 25, is, is on an island called Chiloé off the coast of Chile. And I wrap my head around um, a lot of words that I, I didn't know that I could pronounce. But uh, there are resources online. I think howtopronounce.com has, has become a good help for me. You, you select the language that the word is, you paste the word in, and it'll, it'll speak it for you, which is kind of cool. So, um, you know, I, I, I want to get a little bit more global with the stories, um, but I have to do it carefully. And uh, it's, it be, when you move outside of English, it's harder and harder to do things um, and not lose listeners and upset people from those cultures. And I, I want to be careful. Of course. I mean, yeah. that's the struggle with, you know, sort of folklore is what gets lost in translation or what comes off as disrespectful or, yeah, absolutely. I could see the struggle in that for sure, but that's exciting nonetheless, sort of branching out globally with this. Um, I think that's a great way to go and it can only really go up from there, Aaron. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> it's, uh, it's obvious my friend, that you've found an incredible outlet to tell your stories that most people either don't think about or they're sort of too afraid to confront. But with the work you're doing, that seems to be changing one episode at a time. And I personally look forward to what comes next. And where can we find out more about lore and the books you're working on and your your live performances that I've just learned about? Yeah, so I've I've done three live performances. They were in October, November. Um, And uh, it was it was a good season for that because, you know, the weather was still decent. And I I mean, New England, the winter is just kind of rough. And uh, and I don't know when I'll do the next live show, because um, with some of the plans that I have coming up, there's going to be some travel involved with them that won't allow me to do things like that. Plus, if I ask people where they want me to do a live show, the answer is pretty much anywhere. And that that's hard. <laughs> and I have a young family. You know, I've got kids who are in you know kindergarten, first grade. So it's hard to to pack them up and rent an RV and drive around for two or three weeks. It just I would go insane and I wouldn't be productive. <laughs> so um, I have to figure that out um, carefully. But yeah, um, live shows have been really fun. I've, all of them have sold out, you know, hundreds of people coming to them. It's, it was actually a very surreal experience. Mm-hmm. Um, after my first live show, um, in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, there was a line for 90 minutes of people who wanted to shake my hand, take a picture with me, wow. um, you know, get a book signed and, and, you know, buy books and stuff. It was, I didn't expect any of it. And I, like I walked away just, mm-hmm. I, I was, I was speechless. I still, surreal is the only thing I can say to people a lot of times. Like this is just so surreal. Mm-hmm. It's very cool. And uh, I'm humbled by it all. So, um, but yeah, uh, lorepodcast.com is a really great place to go to, you know, listen to new episodes. Um, if you look at the episode description, there's a, a link to a music page for that episode that'll list the songs that are used. Mm-hmm. Musicians are all on places like SoundCloud and, you know, people like Chad Lawson, who is a, um, you know, an iTunes top 10 classical pianist, you know, he's, he's, uh, become a good friend and his music is just insanely great. And mm-hmm. people need to check that out. Um, Mew, M-Y-U-U, um, he's another fantastic musician in there. So there's, there's cool stuff to explore. There's a transcripts page where you can learn about how to get transcripts of episodes. And, uh, I'm thinking about putting like a, not, I wouldn't call it blog, but like a news page on the site just so people can be updated on, on other things. The cool stuff that I haven't announced yet that I want to someday, like, where do I do that? So, right. Um, but yeah, lorepodcast.com, um, which lore podcast is pretty much where you can follow the show anywhere, uh, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, mm-hmm. all at lore podcast. And then I have my own personal page online, uh, aaronmankey.com. And I use that for, for the fiction and, and I blog there, um, occasionally about things like lore and, and whatnot. Yeah. And I'm a M a H N K E on Twitter and I have a fan page on Facebook. People try to friend me on like my personal account and I always delete those requests because Oh, of course. Yeah. Personal Facebook is, is personal <laughs> Facebook, but but I've got a fan page for both lore and my writing stuff, so people can check that out. Thank but. you so much for joining us today, man, and all the best with your upcoming projects. Thanks. I really appreciate it. All right. That is it for this week's show. To find all of Aaron Mankey's work, visit lorepodcast.com. And be sure to check out the all-new television adaptation exclusively on Amazon. 
If you haven't already, please consider subscribing to the show on iTunes. It is the only way the show gains visibility on the biggest podcast platform in the world. While there, I hope you'll also consider rating and reviewing the show. We have a perfect five-star rating right now, and I couldn't be more honored and thankful for that. All past episodes and extra content can also be found on the website. You can also reach me directly through the contact tab for guest or topic suggestions, or to share your story that I may feature on the show. That's all at SomewhereInTheSkies.com. Also a reminder, the Somewhere in the Skies store is open for business. All types of apparel and merch can be found by visiting tpublic.com. That's T-E-E-Public.com and searching for Somewhere in the Skies. Next week, we dive right back into the Halloween spirit when we speak with the woman who inspired me to start the Somewhere in the Skies podcast, Miss Shannon LeGros. We talk all about her favorite and most interesting interviews she's conducted on her acclaimed podcast, Into the Fray. You won't want to miss this jam-packed interview next Sunday on all major podcast outlets. I'll see you next week, and remember, keep your feet on the ground, but never... What was that? Anyways, keep your feet on the ground, but never stop searching somewhere in the skies. That is a damn werewolf. Skies is produced by Third Kind Productions in association with Antica Productions and the Antica Podcast Network. To learn more, visit anticaproductions.com. Hello, this is Danny Pellegrino, host of the Everything Iconic Podcast, and I'm here to tell you all about Splash Refresher because hydration is mandatory, but boring is not. Now, I love my water, but if I don't spice it up, I'm not going to finish what I took out of the fridge. That's why I love my Splash Refresher, which is flavorful, delicious, bright, hydrating, and zero calories. The wild berry flavor is my fave. No, wait. Is the pineapple mango flavor my fave? You know what? All five craveable Splash Refresher flavors are my fave because they're so delicious. So get hydrated and enjoy it with Splash Refresher. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.